to weep loudly because no one was found to open the scroll and look into it. And then one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in the seven seals. And then he goes on to speak to say um, the things he saw and different living creatures. But then the elders fell down singing in your song. And they were singing to God, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and brought, bought people for God by your blood in every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. So there's that devastation that you feel when you look around and you can see there's no one, no one is worthy. And then the joy and amazement of awe when there's Jesus who is worthy and who has died. 
called The River Is
singing today. morning again. I was in the back. It's just with the pulpit being up here on the stage, one of those things with it being up here is I'm always tempted to just run up and jump up. And, you know, but then I, keep, then I say to myself, no, it's Sunday morning. You have to walk up. Um, I'm just being honest. That temptation is there to jump up on the stage and and, and go from there. And you know, but then if I fell, everybody would laugh, so then we'd better not do that. <laughs> oh, it's good to rejoice and praise God, and, um, and thank you, worship team, for, for blessing us and blessing God through those words. Um, we are getting back into Zechariah this week and going to continue uh, with chapter 9. Yeah, I think there's 14 chapters in Zechariah, if my math is right. Turn my page and double check. Yeah, 14 chapters. So we have this week and then four more to go. And we'll continue to progress through the prophecy that Zechariah brought to the people of Judah and God's word to them and how God's word can apply to us today. Um, so if you do have your Bibles, um, and I'm pretty sure and pretty safe this week that I have the right words behind me. But I do encourage you to open up your Bibles and have them in front of you as we read through God's word. Zechariah 9, God's word says, I'm going to read the whole chapter, all 17 verses. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and golds like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths and the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now, I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend... Judah, as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim, I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we prepare our hearts this morning to look to your word, to understand your word, and to apply your word to our lives. Ask that you continue to illuminate your word to us, and then it'll be a light for our feet, a light for our path, shining before us and giving us the direction that we would need to go. And I thank you again, Heavenly Father, for being in your presence, being in the presence of other believers, 
um, having the Holy Spirit rest upon us in such a wonderful way. Such a beautiful, still spirit this morning, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to jump right in um, to this prophecy here. And a lot of the verses I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about other than highlight what they are. And then from there, hopefully jump into some things that we can apply to ourselves. Uh, when we read through uh, Zechariah chapter 9, we get through these first seven verses. And it's talking about all of these countries. It's talking about the Lord's prophecy for these countries. Um, Countries, nations like Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and the Philistines, they're all on the list of what God is going to do them. That is history. They are things that God did to those countries for their disobedience, for their um, actions that they were doing at that time, and God came about in judgment in many different ways. If you go and look at the history of Tyre, you will see that the history of Tyre fits exactly with the prophecy that Zechariah brought forth. I'm not going to get into all of that history, just to say that God prophesied this through Zechariah, and all of those things were fulfilled. If you start looking up the history of any of those countries, you will see that the powerful hand of God came on them because of their actions. So I get all the way down, and I'm going to jump all the way down to verse 8. And that's when I come to this place where I stop and I say, what? What are you talking again? Because I have history on, our, on my side. Zechariah did not have history. He was prophesying of something that was going to happen. Here I am looking backwards at what Zechariah was saying. But when I get to the words where God is saying that never again, those last words of verse 8, never again will an oppressor overrun my people for now I am keeping watch. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. And I have to step back from that verse right away and say, what is Zechariah talking about here? Because again, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, if I go through the history of Judah, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years where they were greatly oppressed. And so if I'm going to the Zechariah's prophecy where he says, never again will an oppressor overrun my people, well, they were overrun. They definitely were overrun. I mean, they were overrun by the Romans and other nations. And so as a physical national country, this prophecy does not apply. And so that's where I have to scratch my head and say, okay, God, what are you saying? What is the kingdom that you are talking about here? What is What are the people that you are talking about here? And when you say, never again will an oppressor overrun my people, are you referring to a nation that has borders and a piece of land? Or are you talking about your people who are called by your name? And that's why I have to jump to the latter. And so that's why when I get to a verse like this, I have to stop and scratch my head and say, how does this now... What God is starting to say, how is this now going to apply to my life and apply to our lives this morning? So I can't specifically apply this to the people of Judah. They had good times. They had bad times. They had times where they did not exist. But I know that God's people, his chosen people, all of the believers in God, a kingdom without borders is what God is talking about. And so... I'm going to jump into this, and as we go through the next verses, understand what is being said here. So as I get it down into the next verses, we start to get a picture of what verse 8 was about. And so we're going to dig in and look at, right at verses 9 and 10 about the righteous ruler that God brings about. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's what we're to do is to rejoice and shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king. Oh, my king, my ruler is coming to you. He's righteous and having salvation. He's gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. There is the ruler that is over us. I love the words that say, see your king comes to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about me. No king has ever come and knocked on the front door of my house. I've never had a visit from the president, much less had a visitor from the governor. I can tell you it's very, very rare that even a local politician, I'll raise my own hand, I don't go knocking on people's doors and saying, 
Your township supervisor is here for a visit. You're, you know, the one who makes the laws for the township. See, rarely do you have a king coming to visit you. If you want an audience with the president, with the ruler of our land, well, get in line. You either have to have a lot of money, a lot, lot of money, and donate to a campaign or something, and you may get a, a table at a speech that he's given. And if you have a huge amount of money, maybe you can buy your way into the White House and may see him walking down the hallway or something. The king is not coming. But do you see how God personalizes this? See, your king is coming to you. See, your king is coming to you. God is there. Our righteous ruler is coming to us. He's coming to seek and save the lost. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So everything that we look about the kingdom of God and about what God wants to do in our lives and about our righteous ruler, we have to understand that the king is coming to us. I didn't have to go out and look for the, the king. Uh, the old song, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained with sin, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me now safe am I. Do you get that old song? I was sinking and the master heard my cry and then he came to me. The king came to me and rescued me out of the out of the waters from sinking. If, if we go back to the Israelites when they were in Egypt and in the land of Egypt and we understand that God heard their cry. God heard them crying out to be set free from the burden of slavery that they were in. And God came to them and rescued them out. It's the story of salvation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God came to us to lift us out of our sinfulness. Now safe am I. The Course is love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. God's love coming through the person of Jesus Christ to save us. See, I don't have to climb a mountain to go find God. I don't have to be good to find God and get God. I don't have to strive for goodness. I don't have to strive for protection to earn God's love. See, your king comes to you. Whatever state we're in, our king comes to us, our righteous ruler. The week before Easter, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Uh, most of us are familiar with, with that. It is the fulfillment of verse 9. Hopefully when I was reading through that you caught on to that, into, into verse 9 where we have our king who is coming, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Pointing right forward to Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry, coming into Jerusalem where everybody was praising him and lifting him up, singing Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're declaring the praises of Jesus Christ as the king who has come to us. And we celebrate that on Palm Sunday. And this is a kingdom that didn't have geographical boundaries. It was a kingdom that would extend from shore to shore. And the rule of Jesus Christ goes from sea to sea, from the rivers to the end of the earth. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so often, and I know I dwell on this over and over and over, so often we miss the concept of Jesus being our righteous ruler, being the one who rules over us, being the king who is over us, and we miss out on that concept. He's given us the gift of eternal life, and then he is known as our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is ruling over us, our Lord. If you read through the book of Acts multiple times, Luke refers to Jesus as Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. The book of James starts with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you start to get the picture of our righteous ruler? He is the king who rules over us. He not only came to save me, but then he said, follow me. Follow me. And I'm following him because I am a servant of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my king. He is my righteous ruler, the one that I follow. And I hope that you are following as well. We have a righteous ruler. I want to keep moving through and jump down to verse 11 because we move down to a righteous rescuer. In verse 11, we find the words where he will, he will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Again, a beautiful image. I don't know if this is a reference to, the, to Jeremiah or not. I didn't read this anywhere, but I started to think about a waterless pit. And right away, Jeremiah came to my mind. 
And if you know anything about Jeremiah, at one point in Jeremiah's life, he was prophesying for God and telling him what was going to happen, and they threw him into a cistern, a dry cistern, and he sunk down into the mud at the bottom, a waterless pit. And he actually had to be saved from the waterless pit. Somebody else went and told and said, hey, Jeremiah was thrown down into the, into the cistern. And they said, well, go get some men and go get some rags from down, down in the, the clothing storehouse. And they threw a whole bunch of clothes down there and they told him to wrap it around his arms. And then they tied ropes to that and they actually pulled Jeremiah up out of the mud and rescued him from the waterless pit. I don't know if that's a, an, an image that Zechariah has given to us, but I love the image of, of being rescued. Jeremiah could not get out of the cistern on his own. He needed someone to save him, to rescue him, to pull him out. And our righteous rescuer is Jesus Christ. There's some words here in regards to a blood covenant. And why? In verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant with you. I want us to understand that and I don't want to skip over the blood covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read a lot of verses. Verses 18 to 22. Hebrews 9 verses 18 through 22. To understand the blood covenant. The writer of Hebrews writes, This is why even the first covenant covenant was not put into effect without blood. It was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law of the Lord, the law to excuse me, Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that all refers back to Exodus 24.8. If you want to make a note in Hebrews or wherever you want to make that note, Exodus 24.8 is the covenant of blood that Hebrews 9.18-22 points to. And Jesus Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood, fulfilled that covenant of blood to rescue us and save us. It's the covenant that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. It's the covenant of rescue. Are we freed prisoners? Are we set free as prisoners? Romans 6, 20 through 22. When you were slaves to sin, prisoners, when we were slaves to sin, you were, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you were now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And again, we see God working to free us from our sin. And now we find ourselves following our righteous ruler and we become servants of Jesus Christ. Being bound by sin, there's only one rescuer, rescuer, only one emancipator, only one person can set us free, and it's Jesus Christ alone. So with Zechariah 9.11, we have another image of a rescuer. We're freed from this waterless pit, and the waterless pit will be a place of dryness. Uh, I want to give you another picture of this. It's a place of thirst, a place of longing, a place where nothing satisfies. And when we're trapped in sin, this is where we go. If you know anything about heroin, if you ever read anything about heroin, you will quickly understand that as a drug, heroin, the first time you take a little bit and you get a big high. There's a problem with heroin. Is when you take that little bit the next time, And the next time, and the next time, you don't get the same high. And so what happens with a heroin addict, they have to take more. And what they don't understand is it's destroying them, but they get the same high with more. And then they, next time they have to take a little bit more. And they eventually get to the point that they're taking so much heroin to get the same high that they got the first time with a little bit of heroin, that they take so much heroin, it kills us. And I'm sharing about heroin because it's a disaster sin for somebody to go down. But you know, it works the same way with pornography. Pornography today is nothing like pornography from 30 years ago. If you don't believe me, start reading about it. Don't start looking for it. Read about it. And you will clearly understand that pornography, you're watching a little bit of it, and there's a certain endorphins that get released in the brain by watching it. 
But what happens is that same picture, that same act, that same sin doesn't give the same endorphins that it used to. And so you have to go deeper into the sin. And you have to go deeper into the sin. And you're, you're trying to quench something in your body. You're trying to quench something in your soul. You're trying to find fulfillment in something. And you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper until you're at a place where you're in the darkest, darkest place. So far from where God wants you to be. Trying to fulfill something. Trying to fulfill a thirst that can only be fulfilled with God. And I can go down through any kind of sin. Every sin goes on the same kind of tangent. A little bit. Oh, that was good. If sin wasn't good, nobody would ever sin. But then you have to get a little bit more and a little bit more. You know, someone who's out trying to rob grocery stores or rob banks or, or whatever the big robbery is didn't start off with the idea of let me go rob a bank. They start off with let me go rob a candy bar. And then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And they're getting a bigger high and a bigger high and more satisfaction. But they can't fulfill it. And we go deeper and deeper into sin. And Jesus Christ has come to quench us of this thirst, to rescue us from this waterless pit where we can't get our thirst quenched. When Jesus went in John chapter 4, we have the story of the Samaritan woman. And Jesus sat down and said to the Samaritan woman, can you get me something to drink? She responds with, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and we're not supposed to be talking with each other. And Jesus says, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you a drink of water that would quench forever of an eternal water. And she looks at him and says, you don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a bucket. And this is the well that is from our ancestors that Jacob dug. And you don't even have a bucket. This well's deep. How are you going to give me something? I want to pick up in verse 13 of John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And here's the great response. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She still didn't get the picture, but she understood something was going on here. Give me some of this water so I won't go thirsty. That's where we need to be. When we're in that bottomless pit, in that cistern, where we're chasing all kinds of things to get our tongue wet, Rescuer says, come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, because I'll give you everlasting water, and I will quench that thirst. I will quench that thirst. It's the river of life that we were singing about, the river of life that pours into our lives and can only come from Jesus Christ. The righteous rescuer is quenching our thirst, so we'll be set free from sin and never thirst for it again. We have a righteous ruler. We have a righteous rescuer, and he is a righteous restorer. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12, starts off a section that talks about God's restoration. I'm not going to go through every every detail of all of these verses, but we do know in verse 12, I will restore twice as much to you. I will restore twice as much to you. God is a God of blessing, and he works in our lives, and he changes us to be twice of what we were before when we were walking in sin. God's restoration gives us victory over sin. I want to go through all these verses, and I'm not going to go through in detail, but I want to give you some of the highlights of what some of these things mean in our lives. Because in our, in our restoration, He gives us victory over sin. In His restoration, God will be our protector. He'll be our shield, the one who is over us. Uh, in our restoration, the Spirit of God will fill us with triumph. We are victorious because of the Spirit of God. He is the one who goes before us and marches before us, and we're victorious. He is the one who destroys our enemies, enemies, and we are victorious. He is the one in our restoration that He will shepherd us. He will be the one that will save us, and, as, and we will be His flock, so He will shepherd us. In His restoration, we will be a precious jewel in His crown. We will shine because of God's restoration in us. 
because of his restoration, we will be considered beautiful. In his restoration, we will thrive. In his restoration, we will be renewed. We will cheer. We will rejoice because of God's work in our lives. All of those images that we get from verse 12 right through the end of chapter all talk about God's restoration in our lives, pointing how we are victorious because of what God's doing in our lives and because of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives and where we can celebrate God's restoration. The work of salvation is one of rescuing us from our sin, but then he makes something wonderful, something beautiful in our lives. And if I could quote another song that comes from Bill Gaither, something beautiful, something good, all my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. That's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to pull us out of that dry cistern where we're chasing after all kinds of sin and pull us out of that, quench our thirst, fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit, and then make something beautiful of our lives. He wants to take us and be a jewel set in the crown, shined up and beautiful. He wants to be the shield that protects us. He wants us wants to be our shepherd that will guide us and lead us so that we can we can be part of his flock. He wants us to sparkle for him. 1 Peter 1, 5-9 through 9, tells us about a progression in our spiritual lives. Peter writes, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. If you have faith, salvation faith, that God saved me, add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, mutual affection. And mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting what they have been cleansed, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Get the progression? Faith. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. Possess them all in increasing measure. It is the great restoration work of God that he wants to do in our lives. He wants to make something beautiful of all of our lives. The restoring hand of God is one where we need to cooperate with the process. Those verses say, for this very reason... Make every effort. That's a challenge to each and every one of us. I have to stop and say, what effort am I putting into it? What effort are you putting into God restoring you? It's a big question. I put effort into a lot of stuff. I put effort into a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that I want to restore that just sits around and it's still old rusty junk sitting out in the shed that need someone to shine it up and work on. But if I don't put any effort into it, that's all it's going to be is rusty old junk in the shed. And in my spiritual life and in your spiritual life, zero effort, zero effort gives rusty old junk. God wants to shine us up, but he wants us to be available and ready to be shined up. God wants to work in our lives and create something beautiful. But he wants us to be available to that. When we're running through our day and we get to the end of the day and say, Whoop, I forgot God last Sunday. God says, yeah, I haven't had much chance to shine up those stones today and make them pretty. I'm sitting here with the buffing rag and a little bit of sandpaper. And I'm ready to work on you. But you're going to let me do it. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge. Self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. Make every effort. God will do a great work of restoration in all of our lives. But God also calls us to make every effort to allow him to restore. If I never read one verse of scripture in my life, if I never read it, then I can never apply it. First, I have to read it, then i got to apply it. And I'm encouraging you to do the same. Make an effort to allow God to work in your lives. God is in the business of being cooperative with us and working in our lives. I can't go to sleep at night and put the Bible under my pillow and wake up in the morning and say, Wow, God, you've turned me into a saint. 
It just doesn't work that way. I wish it did. I really did. But I know that when we avail and make ourselves available to God, God will pour into our lives and he will make something beautiful. He will turn you into the person that you never even dreamt you you could ever be. Twice as much as what you were before Jesus Christ. And he's ready to do it in each of our lives. We need to be cooperative with with the process. Our effort aligns with God's miraculous power to change us. So what do we do with all this? I read that phrase, never again. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. I want you to rest in that verse. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. That's you. That's me. That's every Christian, every person who has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are God's people, and never again will an oppressor overrun his people, for now I am keeping watch. Yeah, bad things are going to happen. Good things are going to happen. But God is always with us. I went through some recent headlines just in the last 24 hours. I pulled them off of all fairness, multiple websites, and I pulled these announcements, these headlines, just headlines. You, you, nothing, no details about them. Regis Philbin died at the age of 88. From Louisville, an armed protester. Accidentally shoots group members. Injures three, police say. Another headline, Chicago nurse attacked by a man on a train who ran it about the coronavirus. Bankruptcies run rampant in July. A memorial service was held for John Lewis. Parents agonize over back-to-school decisions amid the pandemic. That's just a handful of our headlines. And if you're paying attention to social media, you probably have a thousand more of things that happened in the last 24 hours. Things that tear us away from God. This is where we live today. This is where we live. We can't hide it from our kids. They know about it just as much as we do. And we can't go bury ourselves in the sand somewhere and pretend it's not happening. It's the world that we live in. But I do know that God promised that never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. God says it. I believe it. And I know he is faithful to it. I know he's faithful to it because he's our righteous ruler. I know he's faithful because he's our righteous rescuer. I know he's faithful because he's our righteous restorer. And he's the one who is working in our lives. But here's what I've realized. If my life and your life is focused on all those headlines all day long, and my life and your life is not focused on the work of God all day long, We're missing the boat. And I can talk about our righteous ruler to I'm blue in the face. And I can talk about our righteous rescuer and our righteous restorer. But if my life is focused on the headlines and being sucked up by the headlines, then I'm not living for God. So what do I have to do with this? And what does God want us to do with this? God wants us to live our lives in the way he wants us to live our lives where no crisis stops God from working in our lives. Any crisis that happens in, our, in this world does not stop the hand of God. God doesn't go on a sabbatical because there's a coronavirus. God doesn't go on a sabbatical because Regis Philbin died. God doesn't go on a sabbatical because John Lewis passed away. God doesn't go on a sabbatical because we don't know what we're going to do with our kids in schooling come September. God's still in control, and He wants to be in control of each of our lives as well. And He wants our lives to be focused on Him and for our lives to keep moving forward in where God wants us to go. So the question comes back to us. Will we stop and fight against the headlines, or will we start and follow God in the way He wants to lead us and direct us? There are two different things. Is my life consumed with fighting the headlines... And fighting the world's battle, or is my life consumed with focused on God and where He wants me to go and where He wants you to go? I want to choose the latter. God wants us to be focused back on Him, the ruler, the rescuer, the restorer. Let's all allow God to work in our lives and to take us to where He wants us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
have these words again from Zechariah, where he pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, our King, riding into Jerusalem. Oh, what a, what a grand event that must have been. What a wonderful event. People praising you, lifting you up, singing Hosanna, Hosanna to the King, throwing palm branches before you. And then you went to the cross and died for each and every one of us to set us free from our sin. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the cross. But we know that is where the rescuing started. That you shed your blood so we could be set free from sin. Now do a great work in us. Do a great work in us, Lord. May we chase after you with all of our heart. May we truly have you as Lord of our life, our ruler. And if we're falling short of those things, Lord, today help us to make a commitment in our heart that we'll start anew again today. Day one, reset button. That was easy. We start today and we follow you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. You are our God. You are the one we we will serve. You are the one we will follow. Thank you for working in our lives. I thank you for your word that comes alive in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Have a wonderful week. And may God continue to be with you.